0: You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man, and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place, and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. This episode is a special on-the-road edition of Five of My Life. Regular listeners will have heard me talk before about how passionate I am about the format of Five My Life. Strange as it might sound, I don't actually view it as a podcast. I know it is a podcast, but that's just one method of delivery. The format works across any broadcast medium, including live performance. Which is why I was thrilled when the Castlemaine State Festival contacted me to ask if I would do a live event at their festival. Started in 1976, the Castlemaine State Festival is Australia's longest-running regional arts festival. Unique in its scope and diversity, it covers 17 days of events encompassing music, literature, film, and now Five of My Life. The structure of the event was first for a festival organiser to interview me, and then I would take Australia's most popular children's author, Andy Griffiths, through the Five of My Life challenge on stage. I'm committed to 5 My Life being a short format, so we're releasing this on-the-road edition in two parts. This episode is my interview, next episode is Andy's 5 of My Life. The event was held in a large goods yard next to the town's railway line, so apologies for the sound quality when a train goes past. It's all part of the fun of a live event.
1: Welcome to the 2023 Castlemaine State Festival. The Castlemaine State Festival acknowledges that we meet sing, dance and perform on Jara country, where the traditional custodians, the Dja, Dja people, have been creating and preserving culture for tens of thousands of years. We embrace both contemporary and traditional forms of expression and celebration. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. And in the spirit of reconciliation, we recognize the immense contribution Dja have made and continue to make to this country. And welcome. Welcome to our second Dialogues session for day three. It's my very great pleasure today uh, as curator of the Dialogues um, program, and for those who don't know me, my name is Kristen Gill, to welcome Nigel Marsh to Castleman to the festival. And it is my pleasure to be interviewing Nigel in this first half of, of this session. And in the second half of this session, Nigel would be doing a, a live Five of My Life, first time ever, I think. First time, yeah. Um, with the best selling author that we know and love, and that is Andy Griffiths. So it's an action packed hour, and we're just going to get on with it. I'm going to start by introducing Nigel to you. Um, in case you don't know about Nigel, he is the best selling author of Fat 40 and Fired. Fit fifty and fired up, and sorry, and smart, stupid and sixty. There we go, bit of advertising, bit of merch. He's also the co-founder of Earth Hour in Australia, the founder of the Sydney Skinny, and the host of award-winning podcast, The Five of My Life. And he's also a proud ambassador of the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation. He's in demand as a public and corporate speaker and regularly gives speeches to major major corporations on both his business and personal views, both here and internationally. And his TED speech on work-life balance remains one of the most viewed outside of America. Would you please welcome Nigel Marsh. (laughs) Most viewed? Let's start with that. TEDx. That was that was lovely. And it has been viewed 5.3 million times.
0: Yeah, that, that's a... Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of the TED speeches, but a, a friend runs it in, in Sydney. He asked me to do it, and I wasn't really aware of that thing. And I now get letters, uh, emails, every single week from countries I've never been to. Really? Saying, y- you know, I saw your TED speech. It's an amazing reach that the TED thing has. And, uh, yeah, it touched a chord, so... Oh, yeah. was, it,
1: was it frightening? Were you nervous about having to do – because when did you do that? 2007? 2010. 2010, sorry. So that was early days of TEDx in a way, wasn't it?
0: Now there's quite a few different TED brands, but then mm. it was the main one yep. and, and TEDx Sydney, and I think, think London. Yeah, it was a big deal. Mm. I, I mean, so, so it was a little bit nerve-wracking doing it, I dear old Malcolm Turnbull in the audience and all that stuff. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, but hey, it, it worked out in the end.
1: Yeah, great. You have a number of lives now and we know about some of those lives from reading your books and um, listening to the people that you interview on your podcast. So I'd like to talk in the beginning a little bit about you as Adman yep. and that that career that you had that led to the writing that has since led to the very successful award-winning podcast, The Five of My Life. So, you were a very successful ad man. You were in that hamster wheel, I think you referred to it as, um, that was going pretty well non-stop, and that's what brought you to Australia.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to over-egg my success, mildly successful, (laughs) but but I I was asked to come and run some companies in Australia, uh, and I had four young kids under the age of five, uh, and, and I thought I'd been asked uh, to run the companies because the the firm that hired me had done a worldwide search and they had found the most talented advertising person on this planet which was me but if you had sliding doors and they were actually wiping tears of laughter from their face because they couldn't find anyone stupid enough in the southern hemisphere to actually take the job uh, but, but we turned up with my family um, and the, the firm was in pieces. It was, it was appalling, actually. We were working very, very hard, uh, and, and we just managed to turn the firm around uh, after about nine months, and nine months and one day I got a phone call uh, saying, we're closing the firm. So I was 14,000 miles away from any friends or family, alcoholic, fat. Four kids under the age of five, wife that wasn't working. She was breastfeeding twins and another one in nappies. So I thought my life was over. Mm. I mean, I really did. It was. It was. Uh, yeah. It spoiled the weekend.
1: Spoiled your weekend, and that's as much as you let it spoil your, your what was going on in your life. Did it? It. It, it led you to write um, *Fat, Fortified*. And, and I wondered w- whether or not the the process of writing that book and telling that story was um, as much about telling your story as it was about wondering whether or not there were other people, perhaps even more particularly blokes out there, who needed to read that this was happening to other people, not just them.
0: Uh, You are so lovely. (laughs) Isn't she gorgeous? just fantastic. Because I'd like to answer that in an inauthentic way and say yes, but that would be total BS. Yep. You're have so, to swear. It's okay. <laughs> so so, so the, the truth is, I, I was just having a midlife crisis and it was a total cathartic vanity project where sort of cry for help, narcissistic, look at me. Um, and I never thought it would get published. I, I wrote it on the back of my my daughter's kindy pictures in longhand in crayon and pencil. Um, and I wasn't going to publish it. It was just me, you know, bollocksing on about myself, basically. Um, and. I showed it to someone who said, you should publish it. And it it was the best-selling locally authored book of 2005. So it became a big uh, success and was translated into languages and film rights and all that stuff. But the truth is, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. And people would say, who are you writing for? You got, I don't know. And part of its success, I think, is because it's authentic. I I just splurged and wrote it. So the, the very perceptive question you asked, I could answer authentically about the other three. So I just wrote the first one because I just wrote it. My life was in the dumpster and I just wrote the book. And there was n- just no thought. It was actually quite a pure process. Um, the other three, secretly, and we can't tell anybody, so just between us, you know, 50 girls, please keep this quiet, is I do want to try and help. Mm. But, but I can never admit that. So I, I sell them as it's a laugh and it's a story, but actually I wrote the other three precisely because of that reason. I think there are many men out there, uh, I mean, and women, but hey, I'm a bloke, who are living lives of quiet, screaming desperation. And, and there aren't many people who, you know, sometimes you can think no one cares. You, you're just a bloke and so what, shut up, go to the office. And you go, I'd like a bit more than that, really. I'd like a loving relationship and rewarding career and actually allowed to have feelings and vulnerabilities and all that stuff and maybe some tips on how to be, you know, happy but I couldn't write a self-help book No, because I can't bear them.
1: <laughs> it is not a self-help book. None of them are self-help books, I can tell you that, but I have thoroughly enjoyed them. The titles about, of these books would say that you are um, happy to take the piss out of yourself. You don't take yourself too seriously. We know that now too already. Um, they're books that reveal who you are as a writer, a podcaster, a public speaker, a father, a husband, a son... Um, they're funny, they're poignant, they're honest, they're reassuring. Um, you know, it's about this stuff, is, it's happening to me, it's happening to most people of this age, it's happening, you know, to our generation. And I wanted to actually move fairly quickly on to Smart, Stupid and 60 because um, it's the most recent book, but also that's where I'm at. And you, you refer to this, you know, turning 60 and um, moving into the third trimester. I like that. I like that because it's better than I'm entering my last 30 years.
0: Well, so the Japanese, has anyone heard of the phrase kanreki? The, the Japanese have a phrase for when you turn 60 called kanreki, um, uh, and it's something about you've, you've completed five lunar circles. But they view turning 60 as a beginning, not an ending, mm. which, which I uh, uh, adore. I, I think uh, as a society we glamorise youth and we catastrophise old age. Uh, and I think that is a tragedy and we I I want my 60s to be the best decade of my life but on different criteria I mean I mean I won't have any status I won't have any money but I'll be the happiest I've ever been and I will contribute so uh, the 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 latest book is very important to me and it's it's, there's a reason why it's called smart stupid because I, I think we are all cleverer now than we were when we were callow 17 year olds but just because you're old doesn't mean you don't make mistakes or you've got all the answers so that there's a power in that paradox but it is an absolute uh, it's just so sad to see people whose whose third trimester is a is a sort of a pale imitation of their second trimester and, and I if you can divide life maybe in, in a different way where it's sort of learn earn return and, and you know we're all, we're all children, and, and then we have to have careers and whatever else. And when it gets to this age, you've got the right to think about what am I going to do with the remaining 20 or 30 summers that I've got? Hmm. It, can I ask a question? I, I can't see because of these lights. But come a show of hands. Uh, could uh, who, put the
1: lights up a bit, Steve? Thank
0: uh, you. Who, who here uh, knows someone younger than them who has predeceased them? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's as far as I can see, that's everybody. It's an absolute privilege to be here. They would trade, you know, places like like that. So people, you know, I've got hearing aids, my knees are going, so what? You know, it, it, the job is to try and squeeze the last drop of enjoyment out of the, you know, the days the dear Lord gives us. So, yeah. I've forgotten what the question was, but then it's be, we should be enjoying the last third of our lives rather than moaning about it or thinking. It's, it's wonderful. We've learnt some stuff. You know what's important to you, what isn't. You know who your real friends are. And it just, you know, yee-haw. Don't tiptoe, you know, softly to the edge of the grave. You know, slide in sideways screaming, holy crap, that was fabulous, is what I'm trying to do.
1: Fairly out there in terms of your descriptions of what you you uh, expect and want and are enjoying as part of this third trimester in the book and but but i don 't want people to think it's because it 's really funny the anecdotes are uh, well they 're funny because we see ourselves and our lives reflected in in the book and the story ourselves and but there 's some poignant moments and um, part of the, your Life has been reconciling the idea that you lived so far away from family and particularly your parents once you come to live in a country like Australia that's, you know, 28 hours away from anywhere. Tell us about how that's been an important part of this this last trimester, this next trimester, Well, actually 50s and 60s, really, yeah. isn't it? It's
0: interesting. I, I had a, you know, mildly unconventional childhood military kid sent to boarding school in another country at the age of five, which I wouldn't recommend, but... Um, so, so never had the, uh, you know, the, the childhood that I think my kids have got, where they've lived at home throughout their, their childhood. Um, but then became increasingly aware of that, the paucity of the closeness of the relationship between my mum and dad and myself, because there wasn't, you know, just, that just wasn't what we did. And my dad, one, one year, uh, he was visiting, uh, Australia, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a dinner with him. I've never had dinner, I was, whatever, 46 at the time, I've never had dinner with him one-on-one, ever, in my entire life. So I go, Dad, I think I'm going to, you know, have your fancy, fancy dinner. Uh, and he goes, why? And I go, well, I just thought we'd have dinner, mate. And, you and, oh, no, okay. So we went for dinner, he was clearly uncomfortable, and sat down, and he said are you and kate getting a divorce and i went no we're not getting divorced he went do you need money i went no dad i don't need money have you lost another job and i went mate no i'm just you know dad i love you just fancy and it was it was terrible i mean it was you know trying to you know that that Crappy American self-help phrase. You you, you need quantity time to have quality time. You can't just say after forty-six years we're going to be, you know, dad and son, uh, you know, intimate and having a laugh. But it's something I took very, very seriously and worked hard at. And dad got dementia and Parkinson's. It was it was a total tragedy. Before I could, you know, I loved him dearly. He, you know, lovely father. But I never developed a close, intimate relationship with him. But I tried very hard to with my mum. And she's a lady of a certain generation and a certain, you know, military wife, whatever. So there'd be certain things I'd do where every time my book club chose a book, I would buy two copies and send her one, which was awfully embarrassing because sometimes they're wildly inappropriate. (laughs) Um, And and would call her every time there was a rugby game that Ingram were involved in, even though she doesn't like rugby. And, you know, worked really, really hard at trying to create that connection. And because I was fortunate enough to have longer... With my mum, she didn't get dementia. It actually worked. Did it? Uh, and when she got, uh, you know, terribly ill towards the end of her days, I went over and I spent, uh, you know, a month living with her in her house, and it, it was uh, just heart-stoppingly wonderful. So, you know, if you're lucky enough to have, you know, have your folks with you still, you know, tell them you love them, and you know, once they're gone, they're gone.
1: Hmm. Tell us about how. You know, it feels like everything that happened when you were forty, and um, you know the things, the challenges of those that decade, has informed this third trimester. What what have you learnt most about what's important in life? You know, uh, out of out of those kind of challenges.
0: Hmm. Interesting question. Has anyone here heard of the Sydney Skinny? No. Okay. But listen, I don't want people to get up and run out screaming. But uh, one of the things that I uh, Created 11 years ago now was the world's first, the world's only communal annual nude ocean race. <laughs> okay, so it happens, <laughs> happens in Sydney. This was before Mona did that, and it's not a dip, it's not a run in, run out, it's a proper 1k swim. Start bullet naked, Sydney Harbour, 2,000 people. Um, can you imagine how hard it was to get sponsorship? You know, unbelievable. Um, but the, the reason I mentioned that and asked you a question is. <laughs> The event which is very important to me it's got nothing to do with nudity it's a metaphor so i i believe that life expands or contracts in direct proportion to your courage and the magic happens outside your comfort zone and if, if you if the thought of doing the naked swim and, and, and you're all clothed on land and you're covered under water you get a sarong when you go if the thought of doing that swim is terrifying and you wouldn't possibly do it that's completely fine But my point, I give speeches about this all over the world, is if that response is representative of your sense of adventure in other areas of your life, your friendship, your family, your sex life, your finance, your career, that might be a useful data point. I know people who haven't taken a risk in the last year. I know people who uh, can't remember the last time they took a risk. I'm not talking about a stupid financial risk or gambling. I'm just talking about you know living with a real zest and attitude with a zest for life so it's a long answer to your question so one thing one is uh, you know grabbing life with both hands right you know, it's not up to anyone else it's up to you mm. and the second thing is timing uh, I because of the TED speech I get lots of I've had 30,000 emails I've written about every single person personally um, most people don't take stock of their life meaningfully unless one of the big four happens, death, disease, divorce, redundancy. That's what happened to me, I lost my job and then I decided to sort a few things out, give up, drink, whatever. Put the people I love at the center of my life, not at the edge. Is don't leave it for one of the big four. Mm. So for me, you go, don't, don't wait until all i you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have a life when I retire at 73 or when we've paid off the mortgage. How about you have a life now? Mm. Now, so it start now. I get emails from people. You know, I I don't know how to respond. I try very hard, saying I don't know the names of any of my children's friends. I'm on my third marriage. You know, I had a successful career. What was it all for? Mm. Having a lonely old age full of regret is not a smart trade. Mm. God, I got a bit depressing, hasn't I? So I suppose it's it's up to us, and it's worth grabbing the nettle, because there's so much to enjoy in this wonderful life.
1: You, you refer to um, living a life of passion and the importance of that. And I just, if you don't mind, just read a passage from the book. Um, the writer David Sedaris once described his house fitting in his street like a rotten tooth in a mouthful of healthy white pearlers. It could equally be said about ours. Indeed, we regularly get builders promotional thinking about renovating leaflets put in our mailbox. I happen to think our home is perfect. And wouldn't change a thing, but the truth is, we couldn't afford to even if we wanted to. There are, after all, real world consequences to giving up a conventional career and living a life of passion. You know, and I think that kind of sums up very nicely what you're saying here, and that is get on with your lives, don't do the hamster wheel thing if you don't really want to, and live a life of passion.
0: Yeah, or, or with a slight nuance, which is not saying to anyone, it's not self-help, you know, do what I do. It's mm. about I suppose my motto is decide, don't slide. It's about conscious choice. If you choose like, who is it? Um, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch's getting married again at 102 or whatever. You know, good on him. But you know, if, if if you decide that you want to be the richest person in the graveyard and have the big, that's fine. As long as you've actually decided that, as long as you're actually in touch with what you personally, authentically want to do. And many of us, in particular men, we're not taught uh, to actually do that reflection. I I opened my TED speech with a a phrase from um, St. Benedict, which is pause for a moment, you wretched weaklings, and take stock of your miserable existence. (laughs) And it's just interesting, you have to think about, especially if you get to your third trimester. So, so what's it for now? I, I've, I've done my duty. I've, I've been hard working. I've, I've paid my taxes. I've obeyed the law. What, what's it for now? Am I going to work for another 20 years hard at a job I don't like so I can renovate my kitchen? Mm. And, and if the answer is yes, that's great. I mean, genuinely, that is fantastic. I couldn't care less about my kitchen.
1: Mm.
0: I want to drive across Canada, which I'm going to do in a couple of months' time, and, and we'll have an old kitchen.
1: I do love the description of your office. I, I haven't got... I just thought of that then as you were talking about that. It's like a, a, a cupboard, really, isn't it? Or something over the yes. garage that is...
0: It's a storeroom. It's a, I, I write my books in a wet storeroom underneath our carport, but hey. Yeah, that's
1: <laughs> fine. You can see the rubbish bins, you know. <laughs> um, let's move on to Nigel, the podcaster. Yes. And uh, The Five of My Life. We discovered... Graham and I discovered um, The Five of My Life when... Um, my friend Monica McInerney, who many of you will know as a, as a best-selling author, contacted me, knowing we were going on a road trip to say, oh, I just did this really great podcast with a really nice bloke called Nigel Marsh. You should listen to it on the way up, if you like, you know, like there's a whole, not just listen to her, but there's a whole range of interesting people that he's interviewed, and we thought, well, it's Monica, so we'll have a little listen. And so we listened to it, and it was, well, that particular interview with Monica was sensational and knowing Monica as well as we did, we knew that what Nigel had done was really special because he had um, this format for The Five of My Life, which I'll get him to explain, uh, and that brought out just so much wonderful stuff really. So we just said, okay, next one. And we just kept listening and listening. And the next thing we we're in Cooktown. And we'd heard about Albanese and Gillard and Plibersek and um, musicians and all these incredible, and people we'd never heard of before. Tell us about The Five of My Life and how that came about. And what is The Five of My Life?
0: No, oh, that's very nice. It, it's a podcast I set up five years ago, where I interview, uh, they're not just famous people, they've done four prime ministers and Olympic champions and and film stars, whatever, but it's for anybody, but the format is all. It's not supposed to be comprehensive and it's not supposed to be chronological. I get people to come on and talk about a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. And I only go where they go. So I'm trying to get Paul McCartney on, that'd be great. That'd be fantastic. But if he doesn't mention the Beatles, I won't. Yeah, Yeah, that that sounds like melts your brain, but that's, I'm very passionate about the format. It's people who you might have heard of, so even a dear friend like Monica, and you go, I'm gonna say, you chose that film, tell us why. And people, I don't want them to tell me how much they like the film. I want them to tell me something about themselves. So it's it's a unique, wonderful, never changing way of just a different insight into, you know, sometimes well-known people, sometimes strangers, where it hopefully prompts people to then find out more either about one of the choices or about the personality themselves. And even if it doesn't do those things, it's quite a fun way of spending 35 minutes listening to someone talking about a film, a book, a song, a place, and a possession.
1: Have you always been very curious about people's stories?
0: Uh, Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I I, I think... um, Part of my religious journey, I used to go to the Quakers who had a wonderful phrase was that there's a little bit of God in everyone. And, and if you don't like the God word, just add an extra O and it's a little bit of good in everyone. And it's a challenge, we're I mean, not with Andy because he's a fascinating bloke, but it's a, it's a challenge for me where you go, everyone is interesting. If I find someone boring, it's because I'm a boring listener. I'm a boring questioner. That's my challenge. I think everyone has got a story. We're all fascinating. Just sometimes we need the right person to bring it out of us.
1: I'd love to know if you have a favourite interview.
0: That all my guests yes. are equal. Like but children, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but check out the Rob, Rob Carlton interview. There have been some... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, no, I... I'm not allowed to do that. But we do do best of episodes where we we get the five best film stories, the five best book stories.
1: Yes. The International Women's Day one was really great. I listened to that one recently. While I was doing the ironing, I thought this is a little bit ironic, isn't it? (laughs) 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 Um, An interview that went awry, an interview that you can tell us that didn't quite go to plan?
0: I will just say some people are born conversationalists and some aren't.
1: Right. So, right. Um, biggest
0: surprise? Uh, so, so There's a programme called The Biggest Loser. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know this way, this some idiotic reality thing where you shout at people to make them lose weight. And, and one of the people on that, he's called Commando Steve, and he, and he used to be in the army. and he wears, you know, uh, military things, and he screams at women to... Do more press ups, or put the cream cake down, or something. So, and, and someone else had organised this that I was going to interview him, and I thought, shoot me now! I don't want to interview Commando Steve, right? He'd be some moronic popular entertainer, you know. God, right? fascinating, <laughs> deep thinker. You know, his film was about the Zen Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh. So what do I know? Judgmental idiot that I am. He was really fascinating.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go back and listen to that one now. Um, The interview that hasn't happened yet that you would still like to happen.
0: I went last night to see Mama Kin Spender, a band at the festival, and they were so sensational I have written them an email and they have replied saying, you guys rocked it last night and I want to interview you. Them.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, we'll look forward to that one. And another little bit of Castlemaine in your podcast series. We're really grateful for you being here today. And could you please thank Nigel Marsh for being here today? Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow five of my life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20 year follow on from my first book, Fat, 40 and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.